I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Alice Su, The Economist Senior China Correspondent based in Taipei, and I'm here with my co-host, David Rennie, The Economist Beijing Bureau Chief. Whenever Xi Jinping grabs more power for himself, critics in and outside China often compare him to Chairman Mao Zedong, the founder of Communist China. To the party, Mao is a hero, but he was also a tyrant responsible for a man-made famine and political violence that killed tens of millions. So after Mao's death, party leaders established norms and institutions to stop so much power being held by one man ever again. But Xi Jinping has been dismantling those safety mechanisms. This week on Drum Tower, we're asking, is Xi really like Mao? Is this a fair comparison? Or actually, does it understate Xi Jinping's ambitions? This is Drum Tower. From The Economist. David, hey, how are you? I am ridiculously tired, but I am putting my faith in Lapsang Sushong Tea. We should sometime have an episode all about tea, and not only because I write a column called Tea House. But okay, here's my weird tea question for you, which is, my favorite tea in the whole world is a Chinese smoked tea from Fujian province, Lapsang Sushong. Mm-hmm. But I have to buy it in London for it to taste as smoky as I like, because oh. when you buy it in China, it isn't smoky. Oh, So my Fujian friends tell me that what I'm drinking is this weird... <laughs> smoky tea that they've never heard of in their lives, but it's from China. So I have to ship it through the UK. I have to get it in London from China back through back to China. And anyway, I'm putting my faith in that because it's the energy drink for champions. I do have actually a really specific recommendation. So there used to be a farmer's market on Sundays in the basement of that one mall in Liangmaqiao, the one that has a big baker and spice close to the US embassy. Oh, I know. Yeah. The Grand Summit. Yeah. 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 And there is a specific tea stall there that sells that I think is very smoky. Ah, so okay. just stop by there on the next Sunday and see. That is genuinely good information. Yeah. Thank you. But Alice, on a more serious note, how was your week? Yeah, my week has been fine. I was off last week hiking in Japan on this ancient pilgrimage trail called the Kumano Kodo. And it was very, very good. But at the end, my husband and I did make a short trip to Hiroshima. And we went to visit the atomic bomb memorial there. And It was very sobering and it got me back in the mood for worrying about the state of the world and getting back to work and back into the news. Well, that sounds like, yeah, enviable but sobering, as you say. That's right. So this week, we are talking about a comparison that a lot of people make these days, which is, oh, Xi Jinping, is he a second Mao Zedong? But to start off this conversation, I'm just wondering, David, when do you think we started hearing that comparison? Because if you remember when Xi Jinping first became the leader of China, there was a lot of hope pinned on him. In fact, a lot of people were talking about how he was maybe going to be a reformer. 
That's right. I mean, some of the listeners may have heard that if they heard The Prince, our series all about Xi Jinping, that tons of Chinese scholars and business leaders, foreign diplomats, they all had their pet theories as why he was going to be a reformer, that his father who'd been in the Politburo had been something of an economic reformer, at least. But then pretty much straight out of the gate, he started imposing like very strong party discipline. And then I think it was really when he started changing the constitution to allow him to hold all of his big jobs for life that people started making that comparison. I mean, at a certain level, there's a reasonable question, which is, isn't it kind of indecent to compare anyone to Chairman Mao? I mean, Mao Zedong is one of the mass murderers of the 20th century. And we don't routinely compare sitting leaders to people like Hitler or Stalin. So I think the reason we think about this comparison is because so many Chinese make it, right? I mean, you and I, I'm sure, have been at any number of meals in Beijing where older Chinese who remember the Cultural Revolution for themselves will start saying, we're going back to the Cultural Revolution, or it feels like China is going back to the 1950s. And as a foreigner, you just have to sort of respect their right to say that, even if China doesn't look as chaotic or as violent or as ideologically frenzied as those days. But clearly something about Xi Jinping's amassing of power and the endless sycophancy towards him from other politicians and the state media does remind a lot of particularly liberal elites of the Mao days. And that is not a good memory for them. When I hear Chinese people talk about the Xi Mao comparison, I I often hear that it's not that people think we are currently living with Mao 2.0, but it's that so many of the things Xi has done make Chinese people feel like their society was moving in a certain direction. And then once he came in, it stopped and it made a U-turn and started going back towards something very familiar in a frightening way. And it's perfectly legitimate for them to have that worry, right? Because of all the things that have happened since Xi Jinping came into power, you can look at the way that he purged his rivals with all these anti-corruption campaigns, the way he crushed civil society, rounded up the human rights lawyers and said, we don't want Western values here in China. And I think really in recent years, and especially last year, under zero COVID, that's when people were really worried and making that C-Mao comparison because it was just so clear that this was his policy, that it was so arbitrary, that so many people were suffering, and yet it didn't matter because the policy was linked with him. And if you remember, back at the beginning of the pandemic, he said to the head of the World Health Organization, I myself give the orders, I myself make the plans. So I think what people are really saying is that the checks and balances that the party put in place after the death of Mao to never allow themselves to head back to one-man rule seem to be weaker and more fragile and being dismantled. I think this episode, Alice, you and I felt that we needed to try and approach this rigorously and say, what do people really mean when they say, is he like Chairman Mao? What are they really talking about? You're right, David. And, you know, I think at the heart of it, the reason people are making this comparison is because they fear returning to a new Mao era. And that is the fear of falling under arbitrary rule. And that is why things went so badly in Mao's China. The history of the Mao era, which is, of course, not taught accurately here in modern China, is one of gigantic policy campaigns kicked off overwhelmingly by Chairman Mao, and two in particular went very badly wrong. So there was the Great Leap Forward when he triggered, by some accounts, the largest famine in human history, 
Mao is almost like a metaphor for what happens when a tyrant has too much power and can launch the whole country on a mass campaign. And so the Great Leap Forward in the 1950s and 1960s, this breakneck attempt to do away with private business in any form, do away with private farming in any form, and to collectivize agriculture and industry led to tens of millions of people starving to death and a famine which is today blamed on natural disasters and bad weather. But it was the result of Mao's own policies. Yeah. And I think what always strikes me when I'm thinking about the famine is that there's this pattern there where what Mao said and the ideology he espoused, it was valued more than the objective reality of what was happening on the ground. So when people were starving and they were saying, we don't have enough grain, officials would say, no, you're lying. You're hiding grain. You know, actually, we're going to raid your houses and take your grain. And it was this idea that Whatever the top leader said, that was the truth. And when ordinary people tried to say something against it, they were punished. That's right, Alice. And what really went wrong was that the entire machinery of government from top to bottom wasn't allowed to report up. They weren't allowed to speak truth to power and say, Mao's brilliant ideas for revolutionizing agriculture and industry aren't working. We're starving to death. There is no food in these collective farms and canteens. And so... The only way that the Great Leap Forward finally ended was some of the most senior, toughest old kind of generals and marshals who'd been with Mao since the Civil War and the Revolution finally confronted him in private and said that this has to stop. And he did eventually change course, but after tens of millions of people had died and after years and years of suffering. And he did what he always does when he's under attack. He retreats and he says that mistakes have been made. He disappears from the sort of front stage And he then sort of waits to plot his revenge on those who criticised him and who dared tell him the truth. And it took until 1966 when he launched the Cultural Revolution, which was basically a way of getting his revenge on the establishment that he felt had betrayed him. Yeah, that's right. And the Cultural Revolution, it was actually an elite power struggle. It was a way for Mao to get revenge on his enemies. But it also meant total upheaval in Chinese society. We've all read our history, and so we all know about students struggling against their teachers, people smashing temples, just basically all hierarchy and order in society being broken apart. And, of course, that's not what has been happening under Xi Jinping. Xi Jinping is a man who prizes order, but when we see recent trends of mobilizing the masses, of getting people to tattle on one another, to watch one another, and to report on one another, that does remind a lot of people of the way that society functioned in that period. We keep coming back to this challenge in a way that as foreigners, we were surprised by how many Chinese people compared what was happening during, for example, the pandemic to the Cultural Revolution, because as you say, the Cultural Revolution was chaos and kind of mass violence. The pandemic was people being locked indoors for weeks on end, and it was like extreme order. And of course, You had to listen to what they were saying and try and understand it through Chinese eyes and Chinese ears. And what they were really talking about was that they thought they lived in a country where there was law and order and the police were the people who could lock you in your house and there was paperwork and there were systems. And instead, they found themselves being locked in their houses by some random neighborhood committee guy with a red armband or blocked from going into a village or leaving their village for weeks on end by a rope across the road manned by just some old guys with machetes. Yeah, you're right, David. And I always remember how 
under zero COVID, people were even making these comparisons where they would call the COVID enforcers by way of being white guards as a comparison to the red guards of the Cultural Revolution. That arbitrary nature of a kind of mass mobilization in the name of absolute discipline, I think that's what people were talking about when they made those Cultural Revolution Mao era comparisons. In fact, I remember this one video that went viral last year, and this was from Shanghai, where there was a draconian lockdown going on. And in the middle of that lockdown, a resident of Shanghai called a local official. You can hear just how angry he is, right? He's saying to the official, this is more cultural revolution than the cultural revolution. Why are you creating all this fear? I'm terrified. Clearly, there are moments under Xi Jinping that remind Chinese people of the Mao era. But perhaps more importantly, there are many ways in which the two are different. That's right. I mean, I think one of the lessons of the Xi era, and particularly the last few years of the pandemic, is that maybe our frame for understanding Chinese elite politics is just wrong. We thought that you have two opposing extremes. You have ultra-centralized, one-man rule, personalized rule with all this kind of sycophancy and the people's leader. And then on the other side, the other alternative is for the party to have strong institutions and a strong party that is enforcing things top down. And it turns out that Xi Jinping is trying to do both at the same time. And that makes him really different from Mao, because why did Mao relaunch the Cultural Revolution? As we were discussing, it's because he didn't trust the party establishment. He didn't trust senior officials. He thought they were plotting against him. He thought they weren't true revolutionaries. And so he basically decided to blow up the system. And that terror from below, unleashed by the masses, would be the best way of instructing officials to be less arrogant, less elitist, and to be as kind of fervent as he wanted them to be. And that is not Xi Jinping, right? She is not a party wrecker. He's a party builder. Yeah, exactly. And if our listeners remember from The Prince, our podcast series on Xi Jinping, Xi lived through the Cultural Revolution. He was a victim of it. His father was denounced, his half-sister committed suicide, and he saw how that kind of chaos and mass violence destroyed Chinese society. He doesn't want to unleash the masses. He wants to control them, right? Yes. So he's a strong man, but he's also a party man. And he puts a lot of faith in top-down, centralized, internal party enforcement, internal discipline. In fact, Xi Jinping recently launched a campaign. It's called It's an investigation and research campaign telling the party to go out, go into the grassroots, go and investigate the reality and see what is happening. And what's amazing is if you're an older person in China or you know your party history, that exact phrase about dashing that is a phrase directly from the Mao era. And in particular, that moment when senior leaders went out and talked to peasants about how they were starving to death because of Mao's great leap forward. And so it's a really retro phrase from one of the big mass campaigns. And the fact that it's being used again is a sort of sign that something big is going on. And so much of what the Communist Party does is secret and happens behind closed doors that I think as journalists in China, it's really important to see these phrases and to then go and find red tourism sites or patriotic education bases where party members and delegations 
are kind of engaging with these ideological instructions because that is where we are in Xi Jinping's China. We're kind of doing our Chinese version of Kremlinology. Yeah. And what is interesting is you can actually go to those sites and see in person how party members are carrying out those campaigns. You can't see the stuff that's behind closed doors, but you can see the way they perform those campaigns. And David, you recently went to one of those spots, didn't you? I went to Hunan and I went there because one of the party leaders from the Mao era, a long dead revolutionary, stands more than, I guess, anyone else for strict top-down party discipline. And he's also a long-dead revolutionary who has been highly praised by Xi Jinping. He wrote a book on party discipline, a pamphlet called How to Be a Good Communist. Oh, you mean Liu Xiaoqi. I mean Liu Xiaoqi. So Liu Xiaoqi, who rose to be the president of China and anointed successor to Chairman Mao until they fell out and he was purged. We'll be back in a moment to discuss what David found at this red pilgrimage site and what it says about Xi Jinping's China. But first, we wanted to remind you that you can read much more in this week's issue of The Economist. We have stories this week about China's new AI policy, about how China is stealing Taiwan's tastiest pineapple, and about how young, unemployed people are making memes about a character from a classic Lu Xun story. I know you wrote that piece, Alice, and it was a cracker. <laughs> and I particularly liked the photograph that we had of Lu Xun in some seriously chunky knitwear. Yes, he looked very hip for a man who lived 100 years ago. If you're a subscriber already, thank you. And if you're not, then we have a free 30-day digital subscription just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash drum offer to find out more. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, David, you went to Hunan to visit the memorial of Liu Shaoqi. What did you discover there? So, Alice, I went to two memorial sites associated with Liu Shaoqi. And at a kind of historical objective level, they're kind of nuts because you have this enormous bronze statue of Liu Shaoqi, the most important communist leader to be purged and ultimately killed under Mao's orders. And you have these Communist Party members in Mao badges who loved Chairman Mao, happily bowing to Liu Shaoqi, the guy he had killed, and laying chrysanthemums at his feet. And they seem to see nothing odd in that. Yeah, it's like no problem, despite the clear contradiction. That's right. So you have these party delegations who've come from the same work units, or they're all teachers at the same school, or school groups in their uniforms, and they're laying these flowers. Some of them recite the party oath in front of a hammer and sickle flag. Wow, so you can hear the tour guide there telling the visitors, you know, this is the memorial of our esteemed leader. Bow once, bow twice, bow three times. And it almost sounds religious the way that they're standing there bowing to a statue. 
How did you make sense of that, David? Well, you'll remember whenever you go to these party education bases, these red tourism shrines, it is that weird mixture of a sacred, almost religious site with lots of language about martyrs and keeping the faith, but it's also a chance to go on a holiday. So if you're an official working in some office, you say, let's go on party education. You basically get to have a free holiday. And so you see them in their white shirts and their black trousers, all lined up with a twanjang at the front who leads them in kind of all the ceremonies. And they go and buy their wreath and they can decide how much money they want to spend on the flowers. But what's really striking is when you talk to some of these delegations, they are very, very conscious of why this is in line with the latest education campaign with the latest study session that is being inflicted on all party members. Why, if you pick up the People's Daily, they're in the right place for what the party is trying to kind of stress at the moment. So to give you an example, that group with the tour guide that we just heard, they were leading a group of school teachers and education officials from a local school. And I talked to the leader of the group and I asked him, is this a particularly appropriate time to go and study the memory of Liu Xiaoqi? And he was bang on message. As often with kind of party members, particularly in Xi's China, it's a very disciplined kind of place. He could explain exactly why Liu Xiaoqi's famous act of going to the countryside in the 1960s to investigate at the grassroots, in fact, at the end of the Great Leap Forward, right, when Mao had destroyed so much, that that reflects the spirit and the wisdom of Xi Jinping's party today. Interesting. So he emphasizes that the central leadership is very focused on investigation and going down to the grassroots at the moment. And he says, Comrade Shaoqi came here in the 60s for investigation. And this is an excellent tradition within our party. But, you know, it's kind of strange for me to hear that because when Liu Shaoqi went to the countryside in the 60s, he was investigating a disastrous mistake made by Mao Zedong. And then he was purged when he spoke up about it. So, I mean, is that how it's being framed? Is that how it's being taught at his memorial site? Uh, Absolutely not. So as we've discussed on Drum Tower before, there is real history that actually happened. And then there is Communist Party approved history. And in the Communist Party approved history... At the end of the Great Leap Forward, Chairman Mao realized that some people had made mistakes and therefore he selflessly and wisely chose to send out his most trusted lieutenants, including people like Liu Xiaoqi, to go to their hometowns in the countryside where they could talk to the farmers in their own dialects, where they would be trusted to get the truth. And they brought back the news of what needed to be tweaked. And then the policy was tweaked because the party is always right. And to the point that you have kind of photographs from the time of Chairman Mao beaming away delightedly, flanked by people like Liu Xiaoqi and other leaders as they go off on these investigations when we know that actually this was a catastrophe for Mao and he was furious about being forced to change the policy. Wow. So clearly it's not a shrine to somebody who defied their leader, who took great risks to hold the top man accountable. That's absolutely right. This is not about speaking truth to power. They have one of those well-polished, party phrases that just doesn't really mean that much, which gets you out of everything. So they talk about seeking truth from facts. And of course, Mr. Liu, the teacher who I spoke to as he just finished bowing to this bronze statue, that's exactly what he talked about. 
，这个学习刘主席实事求是，找到适合中国发展道路这一个创新技术。Yeah, you ask him like, what are we supposed to learn from Liu Shaoqi? He says we learn the spirit of 实事求是 seek truth from facts, and find a development path that suits China. And it's just very clear he's reciting these slogans, but it's incredibly ironic, right? Because he's talking about seeking truth from facts, but even at this memorial site, the facts have been rewritten to fit the party's current truth. Exactly, and in party speak. Seek truth from facts, which was a phrase first made famous by Chairman Mao, then borrowed by people who thought the exact opposite of Chairman Mao after his death, like Deng Xiaoping. It's one of those phrases that just means do your job well, try and be objective.、Hmm, so, how does the museum say that Liu Shaoqi did his job well? A lot of the early life is that he's like the communist version of James Bond. He's working behind enemy lines in Japanese-occupied China, in Guomindang-controlled areas, risking his life to start these underground. Party cells, and then it just ends neatly with the fact that he was purged during the Cultural Revolution, but then he was rehabilitated after his death. And you know, I met a school group of teenagers, fifteen, sixteen years old, and they had that official history down pat. He is a very smart person. He is a very smart person. I think that. Ah, so she's saying that I think he was a great man, a great leader, and even if he was purged during the Cultural Revolution, he was rehabilitated afterwards, and he's still a role model for us to study. And she was right. The Communist Party held a formal ceremony to rehabilitate Liu Xiaoqi in 1980, convened by China's big leader after Mao, Deng Xiaoping. Wow! So that is a line from a ceremony for Liu Shaoqi in 1980, and they say the great Marxist revolutionary Liu Shaoqi, who left us ten years ago, is completely rehabilitated. It's almost like a kind of religious ceremony, right? It's like sort of someone being canonized or kind of beatified. It is such a strange, strange way to run a country in some ways. But there's a kind of common thread of how do you make this stuff useful for today's governance? And so I went to a second red tourism site associated with Liu Shaoqi. That's a village called Tianhua. It's not that far away from the first big museum. And outside, what do you have? You have a giant boulder and carved into the stone, painted into it in red characters. It says. Seek truth from facts, because they've got to be on brand, right? And actually, what it is is they've restored an office that used to belong to the collective farm, where at the end of the Great Leap Forward, during that awful famine, Liu went undercover, pretending to be just like the leader of an inspection team, didn't say he was president of China, and he went to ask the local peasants what's going on, what should we be doing? And it's a big draw in Hunan. I mean, three hundred thousand people visited this very small shrine. The last year before the pandemic closed things down, they get school groups, they have soldiers, party officials, and it's a kind of shrine to truth-telling. Going to the grassroots, you know, he's there sharing cigarettes with the peasant farmers, talking to them in dialect in these photographs, and they're very proud. For example, of there is a bed made of just a wooden door from the office, balanced on two benches that he slept on, and then apparently a lorry, we're told, turned up with soft furniture, but it was sent away because that would blow his cover. That he was president of China because he was just there to get the truth on the ground. Oh, so it's that classic 
party image, right, of the dedicated member who embraces suffering, who is gritty, and who wants to do difficult things for the people. But I'm still trying to grasp here is why Liu Shaoqi is meaningful today for Xi Jinping's China. Alice, toughness and selflessness, this idea that Xi Jinping loves about the party being this kind of pure, almost like a secular missionary movement that goes to the villages and the most powerful people in China will sleep on a wooden board. Xi Jinping even mentioned that bed on benches in a speech about Liu Xiaoqi once. It's that idea that if the masses are worried that the Communist Party is actually about privilege and bribery and riding around in huge flashy cars and eating banquets, Xi Jinping is very, very keen to get away from that image, that the party is actually the best of the best, the purest of the pure. So Liu Xiaoqi going to his old home district and talking to farmers about what's just gone wrong, that's a good image for him. What's fascinating is that actually that belief that the party can purify itself, that belief in top-down discipline, that ascetic party that can be trusted to purge its own corruption, that's exactly how Liu Xiaoqi saw things. He was a party guy. He was an organiser, a party builder. Mao, when he worried about the Communist Party becoming distant from the masses and not revolutionary enough and too bourgeois, he had a completely different solution, which was to unleash class warfare and violence from the bottom. And that makes Xi and Mao really different in their approaches to tackling the same problem, which is a party that both leaders thought had got out of touch. And that led me to a really interesting paper by Andrew Walter, one of the best historians of the Mao era. He's at Stanford University in America. He wrote a paper a few years ago making this exact point. Look at Xi Jinping not as a kind of Maoist-style blow-it-all-up leader, but as someone much more like Liu Xiaoqi. It's all about the bureaucracy purging itself. And that Liu Xiaoqi was actually in some ways this kind of perfect bureaucrat, like Xi Jinping is this career bureaucrat. And when I spoke to Andrew Walder this week, he had a really colourful framing for what Mao was trying to achieve when he unleashed the Cultural Revolution on his own Communist Party, that in modern American terms, Mao was a populist strongman who felt that he had been attacked by the deep state. And then he planned what, you know, we in America would call his campaign against the deep state. And Liu Xiaoqi was the head of the deep state and ultimately paid the price. Yeah, Liu was one of the first and highest leaders to be targeted when Mao unleashed the masses against his enemies in the party. You can hear the sound of children denouncing him during the Cultural Revolution. It's an amazing story. You know, he'd been president of China, but by the end, he was being publicly struggled against. There's black and white film footage of him being dragged in front of crowds of baying teenagers, you know, made to bow his head. One of his own children committed suicide by throwing himself under a train. And in the end, Liu Xiaoqi, the man who had been Mao's chosen successor, was taken to a provincial city, locked away in a cold prison room, and died in agony, deprived of his own medication. His own guards didn't even know who he was. So we've heard that Chinese people often compare Xi Jinping to Mao because he's a strong man. But at the same time, historians like Walder remind us to look at Liu Shaoqi, the party builder. And we see that there's a similarity there as well because Xi wants to concentrate personal power over this 
deep state and to use it rather than to destroy it. That's right. When I went to Hunan, to these memorial sites and saw those party delegations on this kind of religious pilgrimage come holiday, I think you realize that in Xi Jinping's China, he doesn't think that the Communist Party has to choose between the legacy of Chairman Mao and the legacy of Liu Shaoqi. That in Xi Jinping's Communist Party, history means whatever the party needs it to mean. It's all about the preservation of power. So he is, as you say, Alice, this strong man imposing one-man rule, chairman of everything, amassing power centrally. But he also wants a strong party as a kind of lever to deliver that power. And, you know, ultimately, and we're making all these comparisons, thinking about who Xi is more similar to, but all of these comparisons are actually imperfect in the end, right? Because Xi Jinping is a new leader in a new era he himself makes that very clear in the way he talks about where he's taking the party. And he's equipped with the kinds of tools that no Communist Party leader ever had in the past, right? He is in command of a total technological surveillance state. And so it's useful, I think, to make these comparisons to help us understand his governance. But ultimately, what we're seeing with Xi Jinping is something that has never existed. And that's why when people say that Xi Jinping wants to be a second Chairman Mao, they're actually understating his ambitions. Thank you to everyone who has been emailing us. We love reading it all. And please send us more emails at drum at And thank you for listening to Drum Tower. We'll be back next week. Our editor is Poppy Seabag Montefiore. Alicia Burrell and Barkley Bram produced this episode. Our sound engineer is Tingli Lim and music was composed by Jocelyn Tan. The executive producer is Marguerite Howell. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.